Ecclesiastes chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, it says, For I considered all this in my heart, so that I could declare it all, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. People know neither love nor hatred by anything they see before them. All things come alike to all. One event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath as he who fears an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that one thing happens to all. Truly, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But for him who is joined to all the living, there is hope for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing and they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Also, their love, their hatred and their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your works. Let your garments always be white. And let your head lack no oil. Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which he has given you under the sun all your days of vanity. For that is your portion in life and in the labor which you perform under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you're going. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill. But time and chance happen to them all, for man also does not know his time. Like fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare, so the sons of men are snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly upon them. This wisdom I have also seen under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it, besieged it, and built great snares around it. Now there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that same poor man. Then I said, wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. Words of the wise spoken quietly should not be heard rather than the shout of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than the weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Remember what the book of Ecclesiastes is. It's about the meaning of life, the search for meaning. Is life meaningful or is it meaningless? The preacher turns his attention to things that control human destiny. And as he turns his attention to the things that control human destiny, once again, he brings up the subject of death. 
And this isn't the first time he's brought up the subject of death, and it won't be the last time. He did it in chapter 1, verse 4, in chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, in chapter 3, verses 18 through 10, in chapter 4, in verse 8, in chapter 5, in verses 15 and 16, chapter 6, in verses 6, chapter 8, in verses, or in chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. In broad terms, the preacher reminds us over and over again that death is unavoidable in verses 1 through 10, and that life is unpredictable in verses 11 through 18. And if death is unavoidable, and if life is unpredictable, if that's true, and it seems to be true, then we have to trust the Lord. We have to live by faith. We have to enjoy whatever blessings that God provides. And the preacher shocks the reader and the audience. Yes, death is unavoidable. Yes, death is unpredictable. So you might as well have a blast while you last. But we need to put this in a proper perspective. We have a blast while we last, but not in the way that the world thinks about having a blast while we last. Woody Allen famously said, oh, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Now, in what seems like a contradiction, Woody Allen also said, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve immortality by not dying. But the thing that makes it so pathetic is we know that he will die because we all die. The Bible says, for dust you are and dust you shall return and death is unavoidable. But remember what the Bible says. The Bible says in Psalm 116, verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. In Proverbs 14:32, it says the righteous hope in death. And the reality is the way that we see our death will, in a very large sense, inform how we live our life. Later in chapter 12, verse 7, the preacher will say, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit shall return to God who gave it. God made you. God has a plan and a purpose for you. Our life is either meaningful or meaningless. But if the fact is that our life is meaningful, then we have this constant terror that seems to be staring us in the face that we don't even like to talk about. As a matter of fact, we live in a culture and a society where we don't even want to use the D word. We'll use other words. They're gone. They passed. They're no longer with us. And even the Bible gives us gentle admonitions when it talks gently about the reality when a child falls asleep and it looks like death. Because someone once said, tread tenderly around a broken heart. Do you remember the first encounter that you ever had with a person who died? 
Do you remember growing up and how you were sheltered and and how death was something that you didn't necessarily understand or could relate to, but there was a time in your life where you understood pretty dramatically that things that you love or a person that you love has the capacity to die. You know, I know that when I asked that question, there was a person that popped into each and every one of your heads. The meaning of life is linked to the meaning of death. But remember, for the Bible-believing Christian, death is linked to man's rebellion and sin against God. For the Christian, remember what we believe, that the wages of sin is death. But remember what the Bible says, that the gift of God is eternal life, which is found in Jesus Christ, the Lord. The Bible says that the soul that sins, it shall surely die. We find familiar philosophies in our family and with among our friends. We've grown up in a world or perhaps you've grown up in a home where materialism or hedonism or humanism or fatalism was celebrated. The mantra of materialism is the idea that possessions will satisfy me. And so we accumulate things. Materialism says provide for yourself. Materialism is best served in a culture where people equate personal satisfaction and happiness with the things that we possess. If we have the right car, the right home, the right jewelry, the right clothes, whatever it is, we have this this sickening sensation. We're told that things satisfy us. And so we buy into it and then we become disappointed because we realize that it promises something that it doesn't really give us. Jesus said we weren't supposed to worry about what we have or what we don't have, about what we eat or what we drink or the clothes that we wear. Jesus made it clear that we weren't supposed to worry about those things. Hedonism or Epicureanism is the idea that life is a party. So enjoy yourself. Materialism And hedonism sometimes merge together because people say, look, I'm going to do both. I'm going to impress and express myself by indulging in every sensual pleasure and every lustful urge, satiating every desire that my body can conceive of. That this life of eating and drinking and being merry completely apart from the plan of God and the will of God and the presence of God. And this is the key concept. People think possessions will satisfy them, but it's a materialism. It's the having of things apart from God. It's the experiencing of pleasure apart from God. If materialism says possessions satisfy, provide for yourself. Hedonism says life is a ball, so enjoy yourself. Clearly, humanism exalts and celebrates the dignity and the worth and the value of the human heart and human existence. What's wrong with that, you might say? Aren't people valuable? Aren't they worthwhile? Don't people really matter? And by the way, there's nothing wrong with expressing The reality that people matter and life matters and people and life matter. But remember what the humanist says, that people matter and life matter apart from God. Possessions matter apart from God. That's the point. 
the humanist and humanism value people apart from the revelation of God and the plan of God and the will of God. And fatalism is the idea that all life and existence is a rigged game, that the fix is in. A certain horse must win. A certain team must win. When I was trying to explain this to my dad, I said, Dad, imagine you're in Las Vegas and a person rolls seven 150 times in a row. The game's rigged. Nobody could do that. That's right, Dad. That's statistically an impossibility. It can't happen. Fatalism often leads to despair. Fatalism is the idea that you can't help what's going to happen. You've heard the song, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours, you see. We're sort of in this fatalistic frame where no matter what we try to do, we can't change what's in. If fatalism says the game is fixed, humanism says People are exalted, so glorify yourself, exalt yourself. Epicureanism, hedonism says life is a ball, enjoy yourself. Materialism says possession, satisfy, provide for yourself. But what the preacher is going to point out is that all of those failed philosophies collapse under the weight of the truth that everybody is going to die. Biblical Christianity says Jesus is Lord, so deny yourself. Biblical Christianity says life doesn't consist in the abundance of your possessions or in the presence of stimulation or in personal exaltation. Jesus says the first will be last. The last will be first. The Bible says that the game isn't rigged. That Jesus Christ has given us the ability to choose or choose otherwise. That, that you are not condemned to go to hell or heaven because you've always been condemned to go to hell or to heaven. The Bible reminds us that we can repent of our sin and our unbelief. And that we can know him and we can love him and we can trust the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Solomon grabs us by the philosophical nap of our head and drags us back to reality in order to build wisdom in our minds. Solomon will discredit and discourage false philosophies that surround us. And so he talks about the harsh reality of death. Look at verse one. For I considered all this in my heart so that I could declare it all that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. The preacher reminds us of God's sovereign work. Read it again. The righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. You know why that's an important statement? Because we're not victims of fate. Fatalism is not true. We do not live in a blind and meaningless world. We are not victims of chance, blindly groping our way through an inexplicable world. The Bible says 
that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. Do you understand what that means? As hard as this may, may mean to you or hard for it, it, it to grasp, the reality is that everything, everything, everything that touches our lives cannot touch our lives without going through the advice and the consent of a real God and a loving Lord. Imagine your life like a thermostat. And it is the Lord God who can make the temperature go down or it is the Lord God who can make the temperature go up. We are all subject to the Lord God of heaven. And so when he says, people know neither love nor hatred by anything they see before them, the idea is that apart from the revelation of God, it's going to be almost impossible for you to process what's going on in your life. Have you ever asked that question? Lord, why is this happening to me? Now, typically we ask the question when something bad is happening. But if you won the lotto or if you inherited a million dollars or if the stock market started to rise, if, if everything is coming up roses, you cry out to God and go, God, why are all these good things happening to me? It makes sense to you that good things would happen to you. And it doesn't make sense to you that bad things could happen. In verse 2, he says, all things come alike to all. One event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath as he who fears an oath. Here's, here's what he's saying. We are all subject. To the sovereignty of God. But he, he notices something else. That whether you're good or whether you're bad, whether you're clean or whether you're unclean, whether you go to the church or, or not to the church, when it says to him who sacrificed or him who does not sacrifice, he's making an allusion to the sacrifices that are taken to the temple as an observant Jew as you begin to observe all of the things that Moses commanded. He's talking about being a religious person. Do good people and bad people both die? Yeah. Does going to church or not going to church change that? No. And so he's asking that question. Help me understand this. I'm trying to understand why this is the case. Remember what the Bible says. In Adam, all men die. But remember, in Christ, everyone can be made alive. The thought is reinforced in the scripture. Genesis 3, Psalm 89, Ezekiel 18, Romans 5, James 4, Revelation 20. Over and over and over and over again. The Bible specifically repeats over and over and over and over and over again that the nature of death and the presence of death in the human experience is because sin exists in the world. But remember, the humanist and the hedonist and the fatalist and the materialist have to come up with an explanation as well. 
because they reject God and they reject the Bible. They still have to come up with an explanation for why you die. And what is their explanation? Well, it's just the way that it is. We live in a scientific world of thermodynamics. And the second law of thermodynamics, including entropy, reminds us that things go from hot to cold, from living to dead. Really? Really, hedonist, materialist, fatalist. Give me an explanation of why there's something rather than nothing. We're not quite sure. How did something become living? Well, we're not sure about that. How did living people become conscious and aware of their own presence? We're not sure about that either. Why do things live? We're not sure. Why do things die? We're not sure. Hey, given the opportunity, would you want to live forever? Some people would opt for yes. Some people would opt for no. We may ignore the reality of death. We may ignore the reality that one day we'll die. But the preacher says it doesn't make it any less certain, any less inevitable. So what does the preacher mean when he says, as is the good, so is the sinner? Is he suggesting that godly life has no value if we obey the law or disobey the law, if we bring the sacrifice or neglect the sacrifice, make promises or break promises? Does it really matter? Does it really matter? Clearly, what the preacher is saying is, we share a common destiny on the earth. That destiny is death and a grave. But the preacher knows something else. That even though the common destiny of all people who live on this side of the planet is death and a grave. That's not the common destiny in eternity. We all face a common enemy. But Christians who trust Jesus, they who trust Jesus, that Jesus has saved them from sin and death has been defeated. They live in a different world. Remember, over and over again, I've repeated to you, Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. Jesus talks about being the resurrection and the life. Death has been defeated. Unbelievers and make believers live in a constant state of turmoil and a lack of assurance because the materialist and the hedonist and the fatalist all have to ask and answer the question about the preparation of death and what death means to them. I heard the story of a of a court jester who on occasion would make his king laugh and he would make his king think. And one day the jester said something so foolish that the king handed him a staff and said, you keep this until you can find a bigger fool than yourself. And some years later, the king fell ill and he lay on his deathbed, his courtiers and his people and his servants and his family gathered around his bedside. And the king said to them, I'm about to leave you and I'm about to go on a long journey. And I brought you all together so that I could say goodbye. And the jester came forward and he addressed the king and he said, your majesty, may I ask you a question? 
when you have journeyed to distant lands and faraway kingdoms and visited nobles and paid attention to diplomats, heralds and servants went out and they prepared the way. Prepare the way. They prepared the way. May I ask his majesty. What preparations have you made for the journey that you're about to take? And the king wept. And he cried. And finally, when he could form words, he said, alas. I have made no preparations. Then said the jester, take the staff which you gave to me so long ago. With the simple admonition that if ever I found a bigger fool than myself, that I was to give it to you. You see, whether you like it or not, whether you like it or not, whether you like it or not, you're either preparing or you're not preparing. And, you know, I have this suspicion, I really do. That when I stand before the Lord God and give an account of my life. That at the top of the list is not so much my own preparation, but rather yours. You see, the Lord has impressed upon me and know in certain terms that every moment and every encounter and every time I open my Bible and every time I get behind this pulpit and every time I speak into this microphone, every single moment of every single teaching of every single circumstance becomes a moment of preparation for someone that I am. Preparing them to meet the Lord. Or I'm pushing them away. I'm encouraging them to go in the direction of preparation. And remember, the Bible says over and over and over again that the prepared heart is the cleansed heart and the purified heart. Remember what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the pure in spirit, for they shall see God. Have you ever wondered why the pure in heart will see God? Because they can't see anything else. Their vision isn't distracted or obstructed. They're able to see fully and finely and clearly that there's a real God. And so... Don't deny death. Look what it says in verse 3. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that one thing happens to all. Truly, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Now, think about what what the preacher is saying. We're all subject to the sovereignty of God. We're all subject to the reality of death. We are all infected. With something insane and evil. I was watching Sir Anthony Hopkins. He is an actor who happens to be appearing in a new movie about a Catholic priest who exercises demons. 
And I happened to catch him on uh, CNN and he was being he was being interviewed, I think, by uh, Piers Morgan. And Piers Morgan also is from England. And and he basically asked uh, Sir Anthony Hopkins, he he said to him, tell me something. Tell me about your own private journey of belief. I understand that you used to be an atheist and then you became an agnostic. But now you're neither an atheist nor an agnostic, but you're you believe in God. He goes, yes. And he said, while you were doing this movie, did did you come to the conclusion that there might be such a thing as wickedness and evil? And he said, oh, yes. You know, there are people who understand and accept that there's something wrong. There's something insane. There, there's something evil. But you see, this goes and strikes at the heart of humanism, because remember what humanists believe, that people are basically good and pe people are basically decent. And given the opportunity to do the right thing, most people will do what's right. But the Bible says exactly the opposite. That there's something wicked and there's something evil and there's something fallen and there's something broken inside of the human heart. In England, I heard the story of a, of a lady. She's catching a bus and she has her baby and she goes to the bus driver and he says, I don't know what to say, ma'am, but I, I wouldn't normally say such a thing, but your baby is the ugliest thing I have ever seen in my life. And the woman's face turned red and she gripped her fists together and she stormed to the back of the bus and she said, I can't believe what that man just said. He insulted me. And the man said, you go give that boss driver a piece of your mind. I'll hold your monkey. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's right. Oh. Oh, how is it possible that our hearts could be so black and our hearts could be so cruel? David Scott Blackhall wrote, Evil is real and cannot be destroyed by making a blind bargain with my soul to call it good. Temptation is the dream which fabricates the specious compromise. There is no solemn battle with temptation. It, it is against myself I must contend for no man sanctions evil till he finds a way to justify it to himself that I may make this point of consciousness more live and lovelier than the will of life may find my meaning in a new direction and come untroubled to the house of God, the strength and wisdom which are yours alone to give, Father. Do not withhold from me, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In other words, if there's even the slightest chance that we could change, it's going to have to be that God changes us. And the fact of death and the fear of death will either bring out the best or the worst in people. And by the way, as Warren Wiersbe puts it, quote, when death comes to a family, it doesn't create problems. It reveals problems. Those close to the death industry see this every single day. When we experience the death of a loved one, we're brought close to our own mortality and because there is evil and madness inside all of us evil and madness manifests itself in our lives 
people will do almost anything except repent. People will do almost anything rather than to abandon their unbelief and their sin and walk away from their unbelief and sin and run into the arms of Jesus. They will get high. They will get drunk. They will fight with their family. They'll spend huge amounts of money on useless things. They'll plunge from one bottle and one pleasure and they will run and they will run and they will run. But it only is constant consumption and delaying and delaying the war never ends and no matter how far they tried to evade and escape that which is inevitable they come to the end of the line and death is still there and so the preacher says don't ignore death look at verse 4 but for him who is joined to all the living there is hope for a living dog is better than a dead lion now again I want you to follow the thought process of the preacher. We're all subject to the sovereignty of God. We're all subject to the certainty of death. We're all infected with something insane and evil. But then he says, we're all given a measure of hope. Why? While we're still alive. Look what it says. But for him who is joined to all the living, there is hope. What's he saying? What he's saying is, look, where there's life, there's hope. And by the way, in the Jewish culture, dog, a good thing or a bad thing? It's a bad thing. It's an unclean thing. It's a filthy thing. These people aren't dog lovers by any stretch of the imagination. So when they say better to be a living dog than a dead lion... It's talking about endurance. This may come as a shock to you, but verse 4 is actually a ray of light in an otherwise pretty, pretty somber thing. When I was growing up, people would always say, better dead than red. You know, I'd rather be dead than a commie. No, better red than dead. Dead people don't vote. So long as you're alive, there's a chance of changing something. In verse 5, the preacher says, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for their memory of them is forgotten. Now, what you have to understand something, both verse 5 and verse 10 have to be understood in the light of the rest of the Scriptures. Look, we're going to jump down to verse 10 real quick. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave. But I need to tell you something. The Bible talks about what happens when you die. No one would quote chapter 9, verse 2 as the revelation of Satan. All things come alike to all. Now, let me put it to you this way. In the earlier chapters of Genesis, remember, Satan says to the woman. You shall not surely die. Did Satan say that? Yes. Was it a lie? Yes. 
And when the woman tested Satan and tested the lie, she discovered something. That God tells the truth and Satan lies. As a matter of fact, a careful reading of the Bible, you're going to discover something. Life and consciousness continue between death and the resurrection. I can cite scriptures like Isaiah chapter 14, verse 9, Matthew chapter 22, Mark chapter 9, Luke 16, verse 9. Many of you know the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And you'll remember Jesus tells the story how this rich man who had everything he wanted died and was carried by an angel to the place of the unrighteous dead. And Lazarus who had next to nothing, was gathered together by the angels and he was taken into Abraham's bosom. And you'll remember in the story, the rich man experiences all the torments that belong to a person who's in a place of unrighteousness. And remember, he begs Abraham to send Lazarus to put a piece of cool water on his tongue to make the affliction go away. And that's part of the point. Clearly, this is different. In verse 5, where it says, For the living know that they will die. Clearly, here's part of the point. The Christian has not a dead hope, but a living hope. Our Savior has conquered sin and death. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, Timothy Paul writes to Timothy, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What is he saying? That dead people will come back to life in Christ. Here is the gospel. Sin has ruined us. Terribly damaged us. But Jesus Christ, the Lord, has redeemed us and reconciled us and forgiven us. That's the very nature of the gospel. I want you to think for just a moment. A hope that can be destroyed by death. Is at best a false hope, a temporary hope. In other words, if whatever it is that you're trusting in, if, if whatever it is that you're relying on, whatever it is that you're clinging to, whatever you, it is you're staking your life on, if it disappears the moment you die, it's probably not worth dedicating your life for. So what, what are you hoping in? Where does your hope lie? What does the preacher mean when he says they have no more reward? I'm going to suggest to you that what the preacher is saying is that the dead can't add and the dead can't subtract anything that they didn't already possess. The dead cannot relate to the living on the earth by hating them or loving them or envying them. In other words, what the preacher is really saying is that the dead have absolutely no way of changing anything that they don't already possess the moment that they die. You will have everything you always had in Christ the moment you die. 
everything else will be gone. I want you to think for just a moment. We are drawn to hope. Human beings are by nature people who want to find a way to make things right. By the way, hope is a doctor's secret weapon. When a doctor has no idea what to do with a patient and the patient goes, you know what, guess what, I'm not... I'm not completely and entirely trusting you with everything that's going to happen to me because I happen to believe that there's a God who orders and orchestrates all things. By the way, does hope have the ability to cure you? For some people, it seems that that's true. In verse 6, it says, Also their love, their hatred, their envy have now perished. Never more will they have a share in anything under the sun. In verse 6, again, the love, the hatred, and the envy, I'm going to suggest to you, isn't because human beings, after they die, are completely like Spock, emotionless. I don't think that that's what it's saying. I'm saying that they, I'm going to suggest to you that love and hatred and envy cannot affect them because we know that love is real. We know that if 1 Corinthians 13 is, is a meaningful statement, the Bible says, now abide these three, three things, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Why? Because faith remains, and hope remains, and love remains. And so the preacher says, death is inevitable, so I want you to think about it. Enjoy every meal as if it were the Last Supper. Look at verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already accepted your work. I need you to understand what's happening. The preacher's emphasizing something. He's saying, go. And, and this is important because he's saying, I don't want you to just philosophically think about it. I don't want you to just cogitate over the intricacies of the philosophical intimations of all that this means. He goes, don't just think about it. I, I need you to do it. He's, he's basically saying life is for living. We can take the time to study, observe, analyze, define, defend, reason, and thought. But at some point, you're going to have to live. Live your life. Live happy. Embrace joy. And by the way, when it says go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, eating bread and drinking wine are the most simple and basic and ordinary pleasures. We have been given all things richly and freely to enjoy in Christ Jesus. We are not condemned by what goes into our stomach, but what comes out of our heart. We can live with confidence and peace and joy and happiness, knowing that God doesn't condemn simple pleasures. Is it a sin to eat? No. But can you eat in such a way that you dishonor God? Yes. Is it a sin to drink? No. But can you drink in such a way that you dishonor God? Yes. I need you to remember something. The, in the Bible, Solomon, according to 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 22, he sat down every day to a sumptuous feast. Imagine your favorite all-you-can-eat buffet. Okay. Imagine another one. And another one. And now you have some idea of what Solomon had access to. A typical Jewish person on a typical Jewish day would eat something very light in the morning. 
And then they wouldn't eat again until after sunset when the work was done. And food was usually bread, sometimes cheese, sometimes wine, vegetables that were in season. Meat was rare and expensive and precious. And so the meals were designed to nourish the body. And family meals were designed to nourish the soul. And so in the ancient world, it wasn't so much what you ate that became important to them. It was who you ate it with. The people you loved, your family, your friends, the people you care about. And so he's basically saying, go eat your bread with joy. Drink your, your wine with a merry heart. For God has already accepted your works. And then he says, embrace each day as if it were a fiesta. Look at verse 8. Let your garments always be white and let your head lack no oil. You may not understand what that means, but they would wear white garments on special occasions and they would anoint their head with oil, much like a person puts on deodorant and perfume. In the, in the regular world of the Jew, they would anoint their head with olive oil. But if they were going to experience a family reunion, if they were going to experience some celebration or wedding, they would put on their white garment and they would put on their best perfume. In the South, in Mississippi, where you didn't have a whole lot of perfume, my mom said that for her uh, graduation, Granny brought out some vanilla extract and put it on her, on her cheeks. So you wouldn't sell, smell like a Mississippi mud dirt farmer. And that's part of the point. Metaphorically, he's basically saying. Live ordinary days with an extraordinary anticipation. Remember, as Christians, we're free from guilt and sin and condemnation. In Romans chapter eight, verse one, it says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We can live with joy and happiness, knowing that we're approved by God. In the book of Ephesians, it says we're chosen and we're adopted and we're accepted. We can live with purity and power. The garments always being white and the oil becomes a type and a picture of the purity and the power of the Holy Spirit. Oil in the scriptures would often speak of anointing for position or power. But this isn't Epicureanism. This isn't hedonism. This isn't life as a ball. Enjoy yourself. But rather life as a ball. And enjoy yourself in Christ. It's okay for you to enjoy all that God has given you in Christ Jesus and Lord. Life is a ball and you can enjoy yourself in purity and in power and in the Holy Spirit. And that's the point. In the New Testament, it says rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. So in a metaphorical sense, when he's saying, let your garments always be white and your head lack no oil. It's the preacher's way of seeing, saying, live your 
life in the most extraordinary way. And then he says, engage love as if it were your wedding night. Look at verse 9. Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which he has given you under the sun, all your days of vanity, for that is your portion in life and in that labor which you perform under the sun. The, The Hebrew text literally says this. See life with the wife You love. Remember what we've already learned about Solomon. How many wives did he have? 700. How many concubines did he have? 300. Most scholars believe he he wrote this late in life. You know what I think he's saying? I was robbed. Solomon didn't have just one honeymoon. He didn't even have 10 honeymoons. He didn't even have 20 honeymoons. He didn't even have 200 honeymoons. He didn't even, he had more than 365 honeymoons. Hugh Hefner, eat your heart out. But late in life, he realizes something. He comes to the stark realization that true love, real love, Intimate love is way better. I think it's his I'm sorry note in verse 9. He's basically saying, enjoy the full range of human love and human passion with the person to whom you're married. And marriage was supposed to be a commitment between two people. And clearly Solomon's words, even though he failed to live up to his own words, are nonetheless true. I think verse 9 is Solomon's way of saying, I was wrong. I was wrong. I thought I could find wholeness and wellness and satisfaction, and I was wrong because it seems to be way more important to live your miserable life in love with the person you started with. And then he says in verse 10, endeavor to work as if it's your last day on the job. Look at what it says in verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you're going. Some Someone has estimated that if you work from the time you're 18 to 65, and if you work an average of eight hours a day, and if you average five days a week, you will have worked 97,464 hours. Now, let's just say you didn't work from 18 to 65, that you got days off for vacation and sick, and let's say you only worked from 55,000 to 60,000 hours. Can you imagine going to a job for 55 to 60,000 hours and hate your job? Hate it. Hate it every moment of every day. You, you hate getting up and you hate going and you hate staying and you live for the weekends and you live for the day that you can leave the job. You could get pretty bitter and pretty resentful. That's a lot of bitterness. That's a lot of resentment. And so Solomon says, find a job. 
rejoice and celebrate and proclaim God's goodness and God's love and God's mercy and be thankful that God has given you stuff to do. Now, you have to understand something. Jewish people saw work as a sacred gift from God, a holy stewardship from God. And so he's basically saying, work as if today will mark the last day you will ever work. Work as if the Lord Jesus Christ is your supervisor, investigating and evaluating your work. And in fact, he is your true Lord and he is your true master and he is your true supervisor. And he is the only person who matters when it comes to your work performance evaluation. Clearly, the preacher is basically saying, invest and commit your life fully to the life that God has given to you. Life was meant to be experienced and enjoyed. And so think about it for just a moment. How are we to live? When we're exposed to the failed philosophies of human fantasy, of life apart from God, of reason apart from God, of pleasure apart from God, possession apart from God, sensual and sexual pleasure apart from God, life apart from God. No wonder there's so much fear. And so much dread. And so much terror. Associated with death. But imagine if you know him and love him and honor him and you realize that death is not some horror that you're facing, but rather the reality of what the scriptures say precious in the sight of the Lord are the death of his saints. We can make living and dying pretty complicated. But the preacher gives four simple points. Number one. You should be free from guilt. Why? Because we're God's children. We're forgiven and we're free in Jesus Christ. Number two, be contagious and infectious in happiness and joy. And remember that happiness is in part a state of mind and it includes the conscious decision that you are going to make every moment, moment by moment, an opportunity to honor and obey and enjoy the Lord. And your family and your friends. And number three, be committed to the Lord. Honor your commitments to your wife and your children and your employer. Be radically invested and involved in your job. In your church. Live in the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, in order to deal with the dilemma we call death, there's a series of questions that I want you to ask yourself. Are you willing to live happy right now, wherever you are? Are you willing to walk in purity and power in the Holy Spirit? Are you willing to invest completely and honestly in your marriage? Are you willing to live your life fully? And I'm here to tell you, that unless you know the Lord and unless you fear the Lord and unless you walk by faith. You will choose one of two options. 
you will try to endure life or you will try to escape life. And by the way, if you're enduring life right now, if you're looking for a way to escape life right now, then the chances are you're not living in a way that's pleasing and honoring to the Lord. Because that's never, ever what He intended for you. Your life isn't simply an endurance race. And your life isn't a series of escapades in order to dull the pain of existence. Life was meant for living. And loving. And enjoying. And so as we begin to unravel the meaning of life, we are forced by the preacher to see the emptiness of a life lived apart from God. And we are forced to consider a life filled with the knowledge, the presence, the joy of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that sometimes we find ourselves living in a way that's less than the best that you've anticipated and provided for us. But Lord, I pray again that now, now because we know who we are, now because we see not only the limitations, but the fatal flaws of materialism and fatalism, of hedonism and humanism, that possessions don't satisfy, that our senses can be rubbed the wrong way, that human beings, as precious and important as they are, the preciousness and the importance lie in the fact that Jesus Christ the Lord came to live the perfect life and die on the cross to redeem us and reconcile us to, to you, Lord. And so again, Father, we pray that we would begin to live our lives large in the resources that you've entrusted to us. Lord, we pray that we could be men and women who are wise and happy, <laughs> filled with joy, Knowing that we're not the victims of circumstance. We're not fated. We haven't been thrown into a sea tossed to and fro. But there is rhyme. There is reason. There is meaning. And there is direction in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.